0: File four of Farthest North, Volume one. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sharon Riskadal. Farthest North by Fridtjof Nansen, Volume one. Chapter two. Preparations and Equipment. Foolhardy as the scheme appeared to some, it received powerful support from the Norwegian Government and the King of Norway a bill was laid before the storting for a grant of eleven thousand two hundred fifty pounds two hundred thousand kroner or two-thirds of the estimated cost the remaining third i hoped to be able to raise from private sources as i had already received promises of support from many quarters on june thirtieth eighteen ninety the amount demanded was voted by the storting which thereby expressed its wish that the expedition should be a Norwegian one in January eighteen ninety one Mister Thomas Fernley, Consul Axel Heiberg, and Mr. Elifringness set to work to collect the further sum required, and in a few days the amount was subscribed. His Majesty King Oscar gave one thousand one hundred twenty five pounds twenty thousand kroner while private individuals in Norway gave as follows. Consul Axel Heiberg, 562 pounds, 10 shillings. Ditto later, 393 pounds, 15 shillings. Mr. Anton Christian Hewen 1,125 pounds. Mr. A. Dick Hovick, 281 pounds, 5 shillings. Ditto later, 393 pounds, 15 shillings. Mr. Thomas Fernley, Merchant. 281 pounds 5 shillings ditto later 56 pounds 5 shillings mr ringness and company brewers 281 pounds 5 shillings ditto later 56 pounds 5 shillings mr a s schostrud merchant Draman, 281 pounds 5 shillings ditto later 56 pounds 5 shillings mr e sunt Merchant Bergen, 281 pounds, 5 shillings. Consul Westy Egberg, 562 pounds, 10 shillings. Mr. Halver Show, 281 pounds, 5 shillings. Baron Harald Weddell Jarlsberg and C. Jovenschold, Minister of State, 562 pounds, 10 shillings. Consul Nikolai H. Knudsen, Christiansund. 281 pounds, 5 shillings. Among foreign contributors may be mentioned the Royal Geographical Society of London, which showed its sympathy with the undertaking by subscribing 300 pounds sterling. Baron Oscar Dixon provided at his own cost the electric installation, dynamo, accumulators, and conductors. As the work of equipment proceeded, it appeared that the first estimate was not sufficient this was especially due to the ship which was estimated to cost eight thousand four hundred thirty seven pounds ten shillings one hundred fifty thousand kroner but which came to nearly double that sum where so much was at stake i did not think it right to study the cost too much if it seemed that a little extra outlay could ensure the successful result of the expedition The three gentlemen who had taken the lead in the first collection, Mr. Thomas Fernley, Consul Axel Heiberg, and Mr. Elevringnus, undertook at my request to constitute themselves the committee of the expedition, and to take charge of its pecuniary affairs. In order to cover a portion of the deficiency, they, together with certain members of the Council of the Geographical Society, set on foot another private subscription all over the country while the same society at a later period headed a national subscription by these means about nine hundred fifty six pounds five shillings was collected in all i had further to petition the norwegian storting for an additional sum of four thousand five hundred pounds when our national assembly again gave proof of its sympathy with the undertaking by granting the amount named June 9, 1890. Finally, Consul Axel Heiberg and Mr. Dick subscribed an additional 337 pounds, 10 shillings each, while I myself made up the deficiency that still remained on the eve of our departure. Statement of Accounts of the Expedition on its Setting Out, 1893, Income State grant 280,000 kroner. His Majesty the King and original private subscribers 105,000 kroner. Private subscription of the Geographical Society 12,781 kroner 23 ora. National subscription 2,287 kroner 23 ora. Interest accrued 9,729 kroner 78 ora. Guaranteed by private individuals, 5,400 kroner. Deficit covered by A. Heiberg and A. Dick, 12,000 kroner. Ditto F. Nansen, 5,400 kroner. Geographical Society, London, 300 pounds. H. Simon, Manchester, 100 pounds. A Norwegian in Riga, 1,000 rubles and others, 9,278 kroner 62 ora. Total 444,339 kroner 36 ora. Nearly 25,000 pounds. Expenditure Wages account 46,440 kroner. Life insurance premiums of married participators 5,361 kroner 90 ora. Instruments account 12,978 kroner 68 ora. Ship account 271,927 kroner 8 ora. Provisions account 39,172 kroner 98 ora. Expenses account 10,612 kroner 38 ora. Equipment account 57,000 eight hundred forty six kroner thirty four ora total forty four thousand three hundred thirty nine kroner thirty six ora it will be evident from the plan above expounded that the most important point in the equipment of our expedition was the building of the ship that was to carry us through the dreaded ice regions the construction of this vessel was accordingly carried out with greater care, probably, than has been devoted to any ship that has hitherto plowed the Arctic waters. I found in the well known shipbuilder, Colin Archer, a man who thoroughly understood the task I set him, and who concentrated all his skill, foresight, and rare thoroughness upon the work. We must gratefully recognize that the success of the expedition was in no small degree due to this man. If we turn our attention to the long list of former expeditions and to their equipments, it cannot but strike us that scarcely a single vessel had been built specially for the purpose. In fact, the majority of explorers have not even provided themselves with vessels which were originally intended for ice navigation this is the more surprising when we remember the sums of money that have been lavished on the equipment of some of these expeditions the fact is they have generally been in such a hurry to set out there has been no time to devote to a more careful equipment in many cases indeed preparations were not begun until a few months before the expedition sailed the present expedition however could not be equipped in so short a time And if the voyage itself took three years, the preparations took no less time, while the scheme was conceived thrice three years earlier. Plan after plan did Archer make of the projected ship. One model after another was prepared and abandoned. Fresh improvements were constantly being suggested. The form we finally adhered to may seem to many people by no means beautiful, but that it is well adapted to the ends in view i think our expedition has fully proved what was especially aimed at was as mentioned on page thirty to give the ship such sides that it could readily be hoisted up during ice pressure without being crushed between the floes greeley naras etc etc are certainly right in saying that this is nothing new I relied here simply on the sad experiences of earlier expeditions. What, however, may be said to be new, is the fact that we not only realized that the ship ought to have such a form, but that we gave it that form, as well as the necessary strength for resisting great ice pressure, and that this was the guiding idea in the whole work of construction." Colin Archer is quite right in what he says in an article in the Norsk Tidschrift for Sovansan, 1892. When one bears in mind what is, so to speak, the fundamental idea of Dr. Nansen's plan in his North Pole expedition, it will readily be seen that a ship which is to be built with exclusive regard to its suitability for this object must differ essentially from any other previously known vessel In the construction of the ship two points must be especially studied one that the shape of the hull be such as to offer as small a vulnerable target as possible to the attacks of the ice and two that it be built so solidly as to be able to withstand the greatest possible pressure from without in any direction whatsoever and thus she was built more attention being paid to making her a safe and warm stronghold while drifting in the ice than to endowing her with speed or good sailing qualities as above stated our aim was to make the ship as small as possible the reason of this was that a small ship is of course lighter than a large one and can be made stronger in proportion to her weight a small ship too is better adapted for navigation among the ice it is easier to handle her in critical moments and to find a safe berth for her between the packing ice-floes i was of opinion that a vessel of one hundred seventy tons register would suffice but the fram is considerably larger four hundred two tons gross and three hundred seven tons net it was also our aim to build a short vessel which could thread her way easily among the floes, especially as great length would have been a source of weakness when ice-pressure set in. But in order that such a ship, which has, moreover, very sloping sides, shall possess the necessary carrying capacity, she must be broad, and her breadth is, in fact, about a third of her length. Another point of importance was to make the sides as smooth as possible, without projecting edges, while plain surfaces were as much as possible avoided in the neighborhood of the most vulnerable points, and the hull assumed a plump and rounded form. Bow, stern, and keel, all were rounded off, so that the ice should not be able to get a grip of her anywhere. For this reason, too, the keel was sunk in the planking, so that barely three inches protruded, and its edges were rounded." the object was that the whole craft should be able to slip like an eel out of the embraces of the ice the hull was made pointed fore and aft and somewhat resembles a pilot boat minus the keel and the sharp garbored strakes both ends were made specially strong the stem consists of three stout oak beams one inside the other forming an aggregate thickness of four feet one and a quarter meters of solid oak inside the stem are fitted solid breast hooks of oak and iron to bind the ship sides together and from these breast hooks stays are placed against the pall bit the bow is protected by an iron stem and across it are fitted transverse bars which run some small distance backwards on either side as is usual in sealers The stern is of a special and somewhat peculiar construction. On either side of the rudder and propeller-posts, which are sided twenty-four inches, sixty-five centimetres, is fitted a stout oak counter-timber following the curvature of the stern right up to the upper deck, and forming, so to speak, a double stern-post. The planking is carried outside these timbers, and the stern protected by heavy iron plates wrought outside the planking. Between these two counter-timbers there is a well for the screw, and also one for the rudder, through which they can both be hoisted up on deck. It is usual in sealers to have the screw arranged in this way, so that it can easily be replaced by a spare screw, should it be broken by the ice. BUT SUCH AN ARRANGEMENT IS NOT USUAL IN THE CASE OF THE RUDDER, AND WHILE WITH OUR SMALL CREW, AND WITH THE HELP OF THE CAPSTAN, WE COULD HOIST THE RUDDER ON DECK IN A FEW MINUTES IN CASE OF ANY SUDDEN ICE PRESSURE OR THE LIKE, I HAVE KNOWN it TAKE SEALERS WITH A CREW OF OVER SIXTY MEN, SEVERAL HOURS OR EVEN A WHOLE DAY, TO SHIP A FRESH RUDDER. THE STERN IS, ON THE whole, THE ACHILLES' HEEL OF SHIPS IN THE POLAR SEAS. Here the ice can easily inflict great damage, for instance by breaking the rudder. To guard against this danger, our rudder was placed so low down as not to be visible above water, so that if a floe should strike the vessel aft, it would break its force against the strong stern part, and could hardly touch the rudder itself. As a matter of fact, notwithstanding the violent pressures we met with, We never suffered any injury in this respect. Everything was, of course, done to make the sides of the ship as strong as possible. The frame timbers were of choice Italian oak that had originally been intended for the Norwegian Navy, and had lain under cover at Horton for thirty years. They were all grown to shape and ten to eleven inches thick." The frames were built in two courses or tiers, closely wrought together and connected by bolts, some of which were riveted. Over each joint, flat iron bands were placed. The frames were about twenty one inches, fifty six centimeters wide, and were placed close together with only about an inch or an inch and a half between and these interstices were filled with pitch and sawdust mixed from the keel to a little distance above the water-line in order to keep the ship moderately water-tight even should the outer skin be chafed through the outside planking consists of three layers the inner one is of oak three inches thick fastened with spikes and carefully caulked outside this another oak sheathing four inches thick fastened with through-bolts and cocked, and outside these comes the ice-skin of Greenheart, which, like the other planking, runs right down to the keel. At the water-line it is six inches thick, gradually diminishing towards the bottom to three inches. It is fastened with nails and jagged bolts, and not with through-bolts, so that if the ice had stripped off the whole of the ice sheathing, the hull of the ship would not have suffered any great damage." The lining inside the frame timbers is of pitch pine planks, some four, some eight inches thick. It was also carefully caulked once or twice. The total thickness of the ship's sides is, therefore, from twenty-four to twenty-eight inches of solid, watertight wood. It will readily be understood that such a ship's side, with its rounded form, would of itself offer a very good resistance to the ice. But to make it still stronger, the inside was shored up in every possible way, so that the hold looks like a cobweb of balks, stanchions, and braces. In the first place there are two rows of beams, the upper deck and between decks, principally of solid oak, partly also of pitch pine, and all of these are further connected with each other as well as with the sides of the ship by numerous supports. The accompanying diagrams will show how they are arranged. The diagonal stays are, of course, placed as nearly as possible at right angles to the sides of the ship, so as to strengthen them against external pressure and to distribute its force. The vertical stanchions between both tiers of beams and between the lower beams and keelson are admirably adapted for this latter object all are connected together with strong knees and iron fastenings, so that the whole becomes as if it were a single coherent mass. It should be borne in mind that, while in former expeditions it was thought sufficient to give a couple of beams amidships some extra strengthening, every single cross-beam in the Fram was stayed in the manner described and depicted." In the engine-room there was, of course, no space for supports in the middle, but in their place two stay-ends were fixed on either side. The beams of the lower deck were placed a little under the water-line, where the ice pressure would be the severest. In the after-hold these beams had to be raised a little to give room for the engine. The upper deck aft, therefore, was somewhat higher than the main deck, and the ship had a poop or half-deck. Under which were the cabins for all the members of the expedition and also the cooking galley. Strong iron riders were worked in for the whole length of the ship in the spaces between the beams, extending in one length from the clamp under the upper deck nearly to the keelson. The keelson was in two tiers and about thirty one inches, eighty centimeters high, saving in the engine room where the height of the room only allows one tier. The keel consists of two heavy american elm logs fourteen inches square but as has been mentioned so built in that only three inches protrude below the outer planking the sides of the hull are rounded downwards to the keel so that a transverse section at the midship frame reminds one forcibly of half a coconut cut in two the higher the ship is lifted out of the water the heavier does she, of course, become, and the greater her pressure on the ice, but for the above reason, the easier also does it become for the ice to lift. To obviate much healing, in case the hull should be lifted very high, the bottom was made flat, and this proved to be an excellent idea. I endeavored to determine experimentally the friction of ice against wood, and taking into account the strength of the ship, and the angle of her sides with the surface of the water, I came to the conclusion that her strength must be many times sufficient to withstand the pressure necessary to lift her. This calculation was amply borne out by experience. The principal dimensions of the ship were as follows. Length of keel, 102 feet. Length of waterline, 113 feet. Length from stem to stern on deck, 128 feet. Extreme breadth, 36 feet. Breadth of waterline, exclusive of ice skin, 34 feet. Depth, 17 feet. Draft of water with light cargo, 12 feet. Displacement with light cargo, 530 tons. With heavy cargo, the draft is over 15 feet and the displacement is 800 tons there is a freeboard of about three feet six inches the hull with boilers filled was calculated to weigh about four hundred twenty tons and with eight hundred tons displacement there should therefore be spare carrying power for coal and other cargo to the amount of three hundred eighty tons thus in addition to the requisite provisions for dogs and men for more than five years we could carry coal for four months steaming at full speed, which was more than sufficient for such an expedition as this. As regards the rigging, the most important object was to have it as simple and as strong as possible, and at the same time so contrived as to offer the least possible resistance to the wind while the ship was under steam. With our small crew it was, moreover, of the last importance that it should be easy to work from deck. For this reason the Fram was rigged as a three-masted fore-and-aft schooner. Several of our old Arctic skippers disapproved of this arrangement. They had always been used to sail with square-rigged ships, and with the conservatism peculiar to their class, were of opinion that what they had used was the only thing that could be used in the ice." however the rig we chose was unquestionably the best for our purpose in addition to the ordinary fore and aft sails we had two movable yards on the foremast for a square foresail and topsail as the yards were attached to a sliding truss they could easily be hauled down when not in use the ship's lower masts were tolerably high and massive the mainmast was about eighty feet high The main topmast was 50 feet high, and the crow's nest on the top was about 102 feet, 32 meters, above the water. It was important to have this as high as possible, so as to have a more extended view when it came to picking our way through the ice. The aggregate sail area was about 6,000 square feet. The ship's engine, a triple expansion, was made with particular care. The work was done at the Auker's mechanical factory, and engineer Norbeck deserves a special credit for its construction. With his quick insight, he foresaw the various possibilities that might occur, and took precautions against them. The triple expansion system was chosen as being the most economical in the consumption of coal but as it might happen that one or other of the cylinders should get out of order it was arranged by means of separate pipes that any of the cylinders could be cut off and thus the other two or at a pinch even one alone could be used in this way the engine by the mere turning of a cock or two could be changed at will into a compound high pressure or low pressure engine although nothing ever went wrong with any of the cylinders this arrangement was frequently used with advantage by using the engine as a compound one we could for instance give the fram greater speed for a short time and when occasion demanded we often took this means of forcing our way through the ice the engine was of 220 indicated horsepower and we could in calm weather with a light cargo attain a speed of six or seven knots. The propellers, of which we had two in reserve, were two-bladed and made of cast-iron, but we never used either the spare propellers or a spare rudder which we had with us. Our quarters lay, as before mentioned, abaft under the half-deck, and were arranged so that the saloon which formed our dining-room and drawing-room was in the middle surrounded on all sides by the sleeping cabins these consisted of four staterooms with one berth apiece and two with four berths the object of this arrangement was to protect the saloon from external cold but further the ceiling floors and walls were covered with several thick coatings of non-conducting material the surface layer, in touch with the heat of the cabin, consisting of airtight linoleum to prevent the warm, damp air from penetrating to the other side, and depositing moisture which would soon turn to ice. The sides of the ship were lined with tarred felt, then came a space with cork padding, next a deal paneling, then a thick layer of felt, next an airtight linoleum, and last of all an inner paneling. The ceiling of the saloon and cabins consisted of many different layers: air, felt, deal paneling, reindeer hair stuffing, deal paneling, linoleum, air, and deal paneling, which, with the four-inch deck planks, gave a total thickness of about fifteen inches. To form the floor of the saloon, cork padding, six or seven inches thick, was laid on the deck planks. On this a thick wooden floor and above all linoleum the skylight which was most exposed to the cold was protected by three panes of glass one within the other and in various other ways one of the greatest difficulties of life on board ship which former arctic expeditions had had to contend with was that moisture collecting on the cold outside walls either froze at once or ran down in streams into the berths and onto the floor thus it was not unusual to find the mattresses converted into more or less solid masses of ice we however by these arrangements entirely avoided such an unpleasant state of things and when the fire was lighted in the saloon there was not a trace of moisture on the walls even in the sleeping cabins in front of the saloon lay the cooks galley on either side of which was a companion leading to the deck as a protection against the cold each of these companion ways was fitted with four small solid doors consisting of several layers of wood with felt between, all of which had to be passed through on going out. And the more completely, to exclude the cold air, the thresholds of the doors were made more than ordinarily high. On the half-deck, over the cook's galley, between the mainmast and the funnel, was a chart-room facing the bow, and a smaller work-room abaft. In order to secure the safety of the ship in case of a leak, the hold was divided into three compartments by watertight bulkheads. Besides the usual pumps, we had a powerful centrifugal pump driven by the engine, which could be connected with each of the three compartments. It may be mentioned, as an improvement on former expeditions, that the Fram was furnished with an electric light installation. The dynamo was to be driven by the engine while we were under steam while the intention was to drive it partly by means of the wind, partly by hand-power during our sojourn in the ice. For this purpose we took a windmill with us, and also a horse-mill, to be worked by ourselves. I had anticipated that this latter might have been useful in giving us exercise in the long polar night. We found, however, that there were plenty of other things to do, and we never used it on the other hand the windmill proved extremely serviceable for illumination when we might not have had enough power to produce electric light we took with us about sixteen tons of petroleum which was also intended for cooking purposes and for warming the cabins this petroleum as well as twenty tons of common kerosene intended to be used along with coal in the boiler was stored in massive iron tanks eight of which were in the hold, and one on deck. In all, the ship had eight boats, two of which were especially large, twenty-nine feet long and nine feet wide. These were intended for use in case the ship should, after all, be lost, the idea being that we should live in them while drifting in the ice. They were large enough to accommodate the whole ship's company with provisions for many months. Then there were four smaller boats, of the form sealers generally use. They were exceedingly strong and lightly built, two of oak and two of elm. The seventh boat was a small pram, and the eighth a launch with a petroleum engine, which, however, was not very serviceable, and caused us a great deal of trouble. As I shall have frequent occasion later on to speak of other details of our equipment, I shall content myself here with mentioning a few of the most important. Special attention was, of course, devoted to our commissariat, with a view to obviating the danger of scurvy and other ailments. The principle on which I acted in the choice of provisions was to combine variety with wholesomeness. Every single article of food was chemically analyzed before being adopted, and great care was taken that it should be properly packed. Such articles, even as bread, dried vegetables, etc., etc., were soldered down in tins as a protection against damp. A good library was of great importance to an expedition like ours, and thanks to publishers and friends, both in our own and in other countries, we were very well supplied in this respect. The instruments for taking scientific observations, of course, formed an important part of our equipment, and special care was bestowed upon them. In addition to the collection of instruments I had used on my Greenland expedition, a great many new ones were provided, and no pains were spared to get them as good and complete as possible. For meteorological observations, in addition to the ordinary thermometers, barometers, aneroids, psychrometers, hygrometers, anemometers, etc., etc., self-registering instruments were also taken. Of special importance were a self-registering aneroid barometer, barograph, and a pair of self-registering thermometers, thermographs for astronomical observations we had a large theodolite and two smaller ones intended for use on sledge expeditions together with several sextants of different sizes we had moreover four ships chronometers and several pocket chronometers for magnetic observations for taking the declination inclination and intensity both horizontal and total intensity we had a complete set of instruments. Among others may be mentioned a spectroscope, especially adapted for the northern lights, an electroscope for determining the amount of electricity in the air, photographic apparatuses, of which we had seven, large and small, and a photographometer for making charts. I considered a pendulum apparatus with its adjuncts to be of special importance to enable us to make pendulum experiments in the far north. To do this, however, land was necessary, and, as we did not find any, this instrument, unfortunately, did not come into use. For hydrographic observations, we took a full equipment of water samplers, deep-water thermometers, etc. To ascertain the saltness of the water, we had, in addition to the ordinary aerometers, an electrical apparatus, especially constructed by Mr. Thornow. Altogether, our scientific equipment was especially excellent, thanks in great measure to the obliging assistance rendered me by many men of science. I would take this opportunity of tendering my special thanks to Professor Mohn who, besides seeing to the meteorological instruments, helped me in many other ways with his valuable advice. To Professor Gilmuden, who undertook the supervision of the astronomical instruments, to Dr. Neumeier of Hamburg, who took charge of the magnetic equipment, and to Professor Otto Petterson of Stockholm and Mr. Thorno of Christiania, both of whom superintended the Hydrographic Department. Of no less importance were the physiological medicinal preparations to which Professor Torup devoted particular care. As it might be of the utmost importance in several contingencies to have good sledge dogs, I applied to my friend Baron Edward von Toll of St. Petersburg, and asked him whether it was possible to procure serviceable animals from Siberia. With great courtesy von Toll replied that he thought he himself could arrange this for me, as he was just on the point of undertaking his second scientific expedition to Siberia and the new Siberian islands. He proposed to send the dogs to Khabarova on Ugor Strait. On his journey through Tumen in January, 1893, by the help of an English merchant named Wardroper, who resided there, he engaged alexander ivanovich trontheim to undertake the purchase of thirty Ostiak dogs and their conveyance to Yugor strait but von toll was not content with this mr nikolai kelch having offered to bear the expense my friend procured the east siberian dogs which are acknowledged to be better draught dogs than those of west siberia Ostiak dogs and Johan Torgerson, a Norwegian, undertook to deliver them at the mouth of the Olenek, where it was arranged that we should touch. Von Toll, moreover, thought it would be important to establish some depots of provisions on the new Siberian islands in case the Fram should meet with disaster and the expedition should be obliged to return home that way. On Von Toll's mentioning this, Kelch at once expressed himself willing to bear the costs, as he wished us in that event to meet with Siberian hospitality, even on the new Siberian islands. As it was difficult to find trustworthy agents to carry out a task involving so much responsibility, von Toll determined to establish the depots himself, and in May 1893 he set out on an adventurous and highly interesting journey from the mainland over the ice to the new siberian islands where besides laying down three depots for us he made some very important geological researches another important matter i thought was to have a cargo of coal sent out as far as possible on our route so that when we broke off all connection with the rest of the world, we should have on board the Fram as much coal as she could carry. I therefore joyfully accepted an offer from an Englishman, who was to accompany us with his steam-yacht to Novaya Zemlya, or the Kara Sea, and give us one hundred tons of coal on parting company. As our departure was drawing nigh, I learnt, however, that other arrangements had been made it being now too late to take any other measures, I chartered the sloop Urania of Brannesund in Norland to bring a cargo of coals to Kabarova on the Ugor Strait no sooner did the plan of my expedition become known than petitions poured in by the hundred from all quarters of the earth from europe america australia from persons who wished to take part in it in spite of the many warning voices that had been raised it was no easy thing to choose among all the brave men who applied as a matter of course it was absolutely essential that every man should be strong and healthy and not one was finally accepted till he had been carefully examined by Professor Heilmar Heiberg of Christiania. The following is a list of the members of the expedition. Otto Neumann Sverdrup, commander of the Fram, was born in Bindal in Helgeland, 1855. At the age of seventeen he went to sea, passed his mate's examination in 1878, and for some years was captain of a ship. In 1888-89 he took part in the Greenland expedition. As soon as he heard of the plan of the polar expedition he expressed his desire to accompany it, and I knew that I could not place the Fram in better hands. He is married and has one child. Sigurd Scott Hansen, first lieutenant in the Navy, undertook the management of the meteorological, astronomical, and magnetic observations. He was born in Christiania in 1868. After passing through the naval school at Horton, he became an officer in 1889 and first lieutenant in 1892. He is the son of Andreas Hansen, parish priest in Christiania. Heinrich Greve Blessing doctor and botanist to the expedition, was born in Drammen in 1866, where his father was at that time a clergyman. He became a student in 1885, and graduated in medicine in the spring of 1893. Theodore Claudius Jakobsen, mate of the Fram, was born at Tromso in 1855, where his father was a ship's captain, afterwards harbour-master and head-pilot at the age of fifteen he went to sea and passed his mate's examination four years later he spent two years in new zealand and from eighteen eighty six to ninety he went on voyages to the arctic sea as skipper of a Tromsø sloop he is married and has one child anton amundsen chief engineer of the fram was born at horton in eighteen fifty three in eighteen eighty four he passed his technical examination and soon afterwards his engineer's examination. For twenty-five years he has been in the Navy, where he attained the rank of chief engineer. He is married and has six children. Adolf Ewell, steward and cook of the Fram, was born in the parish of Scotto, near Kragereau, in 1860. His father, Klaus Nielsen, was a farmer and shipowner. In 1879 he passed his mate's examination and has been captain of a ship many years. He is married and has four children. Lars Pettersson, second engineer of the Fram, was born in 1860 at Bora, near Landskrona in Sweden, of Norwegian parents. He is a fully qualified smith and machinist, in which capacity he has served in the Norwegian navy for several years, is married and has children. Frederick Hjalmar Johansson, lieutenant in the reserve, was born at Skeen in 1867 and matriculated at the university in 1886. In 1891-92 to 92, he went to the military school and became a supernumerary officer. He was so eager to take part in the expedition that, as no other post could be found for him, he accepted that of Stoker. Peter Leonard Henriksen, Harpooner, was born in Balsfjord, near Tromso, in 1859. From childhood he has been a sailor, and from fourteen years old has gone voyages to the Arctic Sea as harpooner and skipper. In 1888 he was shipwrecked off Novaya Zemlya in the sloop Einighaden from Kristiansund. He is married and has four children. Bernhard Nordal was born in Christiania in 1862. At the age of fourteen he entered the Navy and advanced to be a gunner. Subsequently he has done a little of everything, and among other things has worked as an electrical engineer. He had charge of the dynamo and electric installation on board, acted, moreover, as stoker, and for a time assisted in the meteorological observations. He is married and has five children. Ivor Otto Ergens Mogstead was born in Ora in Nordmora in 1856, in 1877 passed his examination as first assistant, and from 1882 onward was one of the head-keepers at the Gustav Lunatic Asylum. Bernd Benson, born in 1860, went to sea for several years. In eighteen ninety, he passed his mate's examination. Since which he has sailed as mate in several voyages to the Arctic Sea. We engaged him at Tromso just as we were starting. It was eight thirty when he came on board to speak to me, and at ten o'clock the Fram set sail. End of file four.